right. Well, good morning, everybody. It is so good to see you. Welcome to Woodland Hills. I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to feel bad that Trevor and I, well, I'm not somebody's favorite. So the, the good news is that we're, uh, hopefully by the end of this service, I'm a little obsessive compulsive. Okay. Um, by the end of this service, hopefully we will all come to the understanding that for Trevor to be somebody's favorite host doesn't mean other people can't also be their favorite host. So that's, that, that's where we're going to go with it eventually. But we are in week two of this series called Glimpses of Truth. And I'm really honored to be here. Greg is uh, out doing what he does, uh, speaking into this kingdom movement around the country, around the world. And so I'm getting to fill in for him today. Uh, my name is David, and my family and I have been going to this church for about a decade now. And so we just love being here. It is such a great spot. And I, I bring you greetings from uh, where I work Monday through Friday, which is at Union Gospel Mission. I love that place and just want to um, give, a, give a warm welcome to you from all of my friends at the mission, many of which are here. So I love it. Um, we are Digging into this Glimpses of Truth series, which ultimately I love because we've spent the last two weeks wrestling with, or two weeks, two months, wrestling with some difficult portraits and pictures that we get of God in the Old Testament. And for me personally, this has been really hard because I, I went to seminary and when I went to seminary, I focused almost exclusively on the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. I think there are some incredibly beautiful pictures of God in the Old Testament. And my, uh, our friends in our small group that we're in, they, they like to make fun of me because they think I'm old. And, um, so I'm going to try and use a young person analogy that we've kind of been, we've been throwing some shade at the Old Testament. Did that work? No? Okay. <laughs> well, here's the deal. What? We are trying to wrestle with where in the Old Testament do we get pictures of God that don't look like Jesus and are there also pictures of God in the Old Testament that do look like Jesus and what do we do with those two? What do we do if it feels like, on the one hand, God plays favorites, and on the other hand, he says, I love everybody? How do we deal with some of those, what can seem like contradictions at times? And I personally, I have some very intimate experience with being the favorite. Um, do you? Do you know what it's like to be the favorite? Now, if you're anything like me, you have more experiences knowing what it's like to not be the favorite. Now, this happens a lot in our family, and the way it works in our family is if there's any dads in the room, the way it works in our family is if there's ever any other option than dad putting you to bed, they will choose anybody else. Anybody else. Now, primarily it's mom. So in our family, if it's bedtime, all the kids, they will wait to, be, to go to bed or to have somebody read them stories if they get mom to do it. Because in our family, bedtime when I do it is about 90 seconds. I love you. I'm going to pray for you. Good night. I'm leaving. Um, when, when my wife puts them to bed, it's about a half hour long extended love fest. And so one of the most uh, profound ways I experienced not being the favorite in our family was my son Noah. Noah's seven. And this last uh, Valentine's Day, he made my wife and I a card. So I want to show you this card here. And here's what it says. Parents, you're the best. But mom, you're better. 
<laughs> and then he goes on to say, and dad, you too, but still. Uh, oh, mom, you're better. It's like, all right, I get it. Now, I think that being the favorite, it's sometimes fun. Not being the favorite can sometimes be funny, but other times it just hurts, right? I, I, when I graduated from seminary a decade ago, I had all these grand visions of what I'm going to do and the work that I wanted to do and what I thought God was preparing me to do. And then for three years and 83 rejection letters later, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I, I still have this folder in my office uh, at the mission, and it's this folder with 83 no's to things that I thought, God, I thought you prepared this for me. I thought you were getting me ready to do this, and yet it just kept being, no, this isn't it, no, this isn't it, no, this isn't it. And I, I think this comes out too in uh, marriages. I know have not worked in this room, relationships that have not worked in this room where you, you were the chosen for a time and then you stopped being the chosen one. Um, it happens in uh, relationships with parents and kids, Right? where it used to be this intimate relationship and then one of them drifts away and says, no, I don't want that anymore. Um, I see it a lot at the mission where we have, you, it's almost like a double feeling of not being chosen where you may have had something happen when you were a kid that made you feel like you weren't worth it anymore and then you get this double whammy of ending up at a place like the mission where we work with people that are struggling with homeless and addiction and poverty and then you feel not chosen again because you're kind of on the underside of society. It's a painful, painful thing to not feel chosen and the thing we're wrestling with today is, is God like that? Is God the kind of God who, if he says yes to you, it requires him to say no to somebody else? Is God the kind of God that would say, well, yes to this relationship or I'm for you and does that mean he has to be against you? Is God the kind of God that is for us and he has to be against them? It's this, it's this kind of binary conception of how God's chosenness works. How does he choose people and does it require him to say no to some and yes to others? So we're going to be journeying through scripture today. We're going to journey through passages that it looks like on the surface that God is saying, I choose one over another. And then we're going to be wrestling with what does the New Testament say? What do we see in the person of Jesus? And are there glimpses in the Old Testament to help us bridge the gap at times? Now, last week, Greg told one of the more bizarre stories I've ever heard about him uh, as a six-year-old with some very <laughs> odd things. And, uh, but the main point of it was that you got to remember where we're at in the story in order to make a judgment about who, who this person is. That when we're looking at passages and pictures of God that maybe look like he's choosing one over the other, we got to remember where we're at in the story and how do we interpret the nature of God through those things. So, are you ready? Okay, here we go. So, what we're going to do is first look at Deuteronomy 7. So, Deuteronomy 7 says, For you are a people, speaking to Israel, you're a people holy to the Lord your God, 
The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And then again in Deuteronomy 14, or you are a people holy to the Lord, Israel. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. And then again in Amos 3, we get a similar idea. Are you catching a theme? You only, Israel, have I chosen of all the families of the earth. This sounds a bit like a nationalistic God, a God who cares for Israel, cares for a nation, but doesn't care for the other people. That uh, it seems somewhat tribalistic. It seems a bit parochial. It seems like he's saying yes to one and no to another. And the the question is, is that what God is like? So because I have some inklings that that's not what God is like, you kind of dig into it and say, okay, what's going on? So the first thing I wanted to do was say, okay, are are there words in there that we're misunderstanding or misinterpreting? So one of the words in there is the word chosen, and the Hebrew word for that is this word bachar, which is super fun to say. So say bachar. Yes! If you spit on your neighbor, you did it right. Now, the word bachar essentially means preferred, desired, or chosen. Is that helpful? No. Okay, so there's one word chosen, which apparently means what it means. Uh, and then there's another word, kadosh, which is even more fun to say. So say kadosh. Kadosh. And kadosh is the word holy. And kadosh means set apart, separate. All right, figured it out, huh? Means what it sounds like it means, doesn't it? That you have a nation that God says is desired, preferred, chosen, set apart, separate, holy. What is going on here? Is this who God is? And so the question is, was Israel's status as chosen really about God choosing them exclusively? Or did, God, or did Israel just like being chosen? I mean, it feels nice to be chosen, right? Now, one of my favorite authors, a guy named Blaise Pascal, he says, God made man in his own image, and then man returned the compliment. God made man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. Other, uh, you can say it a different way. Essentially, God made us with his image, and then we made God with our image. That there, there are elements in how we talk about God that is us projecting something. And so the question is, what's being projected? How cloudy is the picture of God? And is there something being projected that would not be consistent with the character of God we find in Jesus? So what we're going to look at is one component of the ancient Near Eastern world that, at least for me, kind of helps to unwrap this a little bit. So here's, here's the deal. In... Um, for all of us in this room, this will be a very obvious example. For our pod parishioners, it might be more difficult. But we are in Minnesota, which we all in this room understand is God's country. Amen? Okay, so we are in God's country, and we have these heathen nations around us. So we have, we have well, we have the Dakotas, um, we have Iowa, we have Wisconsin, and we have Canada. 
And here's the deal. What I know is that when you enter into our land, God's country of Minnesota, from any other foreign uh, lands, you will get rid of all of your former devotions and realize you have entered twins territory. You have, you have entered Vikings country. Prior to losing the playoffs, you had entered wild nation. And here's the thing. That is how the ancient Near Eastern mind conceived of God. Is that when you were in one nation, you were under the authority of one God. But when you exited that nation and went somewhere else, you were under the authority of a different God, that God was localized, that God lived in one place, and if you went to another place, he didn't come with you. So you see glimpses of this in the Old Testament. I want to show you two of them. The first is in 1 Kings 11, where it says, they've forsaken me, and this is God talking to Israel. They've worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemish, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon, to which most of us say, yeah, I skipped that verse when I read 1 Kings. But the point is that they're essentially saying when you go to Sidon, that is Ashtoreth territory. And when you go to Moab, you are in Chemish territory. And when you go to Ammon, the Ammonites, you are in Milcom territory. So essentially, their understanding of God was that if you're in one area, that's the God's area. So what do you think your experience is going to be of that God if you are in the area where you believe that God lives? Your experience is going to be, oh, I must be his favorite. Um, And you can see this in a really fascinating way, again, in a passage about David when he's running from Saul and Saul's trying to kill him in 1 Samuel. Here's how it reads. It says, David says, why are you chasing me? What have I done? What's my crime? But now let my Lord the King listen to his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, then let him accept my offering. But if this is simply a human scheme, then may those involved be cursed by the Lord. For you've driven me from my home so I can no longer live among the Lord's people and worship as I should. Must I die on foreign soil far from the presence of the Lord? David is assuming that leaving Israel equates to leaving God, leaving the God of Israel, Yahweh. David is assuming that if he can't be in Israel, he's out of Yahweh country. He's out of the place where God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, reigns. And what I'm going to propose to you is that when we see images like that, that we need to picture the cross, as Greg has been talking about so much. We need to picture a tribalistic stooping of the character of God and an accommodating picture of God in the face of what was a standard nationalistic picture of God. That that was how people understood how God works and we shouldn't be surprised that their assumption would be that God is localized because that's how everybody understood God. So the question is, if if the filter and the grid go through Jesus, and if these pictures of God being nationalistic and simply focused in one area, then what, what does it look like when Jesus shows up and says, that's not what I had in mind? So I want to show you a few things from the New Testament. And the first one is that Jesus, you can see throughout his ministry, he turns this preferential treatment for Israel on its head. Now, one of the ways he does this is by 
focusing his ministry intentionally on people that would have been understood to be outside of Israel. So you've got John 4 where he's ministering to this Samaritan woman at the well. And if anybody is outside of the kingdom and of Israel as they understood Israel, it would be a Samaritan. And then you've got this picture of a centurion soldier, the Roman occupying forces that not only are they not supposed to be in God's territory, but they're actually trying to conquer God's territory. So if anybody would be an enemy of Israel, it would be him. And yet Jesus commends him for his faith. And then you've got a story in Mark 11 when Jesus enters the temple and he's flipping over tables saying, this is not what I had in mind. And then he quotes Jeremiah and he says, my house, it's to be a house of prayer for all nations. That the whole point was that the nations would come. And then one of Jesus' final words is in Acts chapter 1. When he gives his instructions to his disciples, he says, I want you to go and be my witness. And where does he tell them to be his witness? In Jerusalem? In Judea? To which the disciples are probably saying, yeah, 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 get that, get that. In Samaria? What? And to the farthest reaches of the earth. That the intention Jesus had for his, his ministry was that it would reach the farthest ends of the earth. And, and then you get Paul. Now, if anybody should have had an issue with this, it would have been this staunchly nationalistic protector of the law, of Israel. And yet he argues against this in one of the most profound passages in the New Testament, Galatians 3.28. He says, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all Christians, you're all in Christ. That there is no longer Jew or Gentile. This dividing line that you use to make yourself feel chosen is an artificial line. It's an artificial line of chosenness. And then Peter, everybody's stubborn, bullheaded favorite disciple, says in Acts 10, 34 and 35, Peter replied, I see very clearly, God doesn't show partiality. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. The barriers that acted as the guard and protector of Israel's chosenness are just broken down in the cross of Jesus. And it's really good news, but we have a bit of a chasm here. We've got this seemingly sun-drenched picture of God in Jesus, and we see it in Peter and in Paul. And then you have a seemingly pretty cloudy picture of God that looks very nationalistic and tribalistic and us against them. And so the question is, are there places in the Old Testament where you start to get a glimpse of this sun shining down? And thank God, there are a lot of them which would take too long. So we're going to cover three of them. So we're going to look at three different strands of thought within the Old Testament that give us glimpses of this Jesus-looking God who says, I'm for all people. The first one is that Yahweh shows no partiality. There are over a dozen passages in the Old Testament where God says explicitly, I don't show partiality. I'm not into this favoritism game. And what's really interesting, not so fun for the Israelites at that time, was most of those instances are saying, I don't show partiality, which means, well, Israel, you could be destroyed too. That 
you might have thought you were special, but this actually applies to you also, which to some degree is another accommodating picture of God saying, I'm going to use this violence that I use on the other nations against you. And yet in that, you get this glimpse of God saying, I was never just about you. So there's this strand of Yahweh showing no partiality. And then there's another strand of what the point actually was supposed to be of chosenness. Now, to try and explain this, I'm, I'm going to just share a little analogy, so work with me here. So, everybody in this room has just been hired as a UPS driver, okay? Any actual UPS drivers? Okay. Um, so, here's the deal. The way it works is when, if you're a driver, you go to the warehouse, you get your truck, you fill it up with all the packages, and then you head out and you deliver all the packages where they belong, you bring them to the right houses, and then you head back and drop off the truck. Now that was, that was the point for Israel. The problem was, what it had turned into was Israel went to the warehouse, loaded up the packages, and then said, oh, I got an Xbox, I'm bringing all this back to my house, and unloaded the truck at home before they actually brought it where it was supposed to be brought. So the point of chosenness, uh, it's, well, one of the ways it gets explained really well is our friend Bruxy, who was here a few weeks ago. Here's what he said. He said that God granted Israel special status, but the status was not an end in itself. It was a call to a particular mission, and in keeping with God's heart for partnership, God entrusted his message of love to Israel so they might carry his message to all the people of the world. And you see this all over the Old Testament. One of the places is in, um, in the book of Genesis. There's four explicit times where God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a message. And the point of it is that all families on earth are going to be blessed through you. That the point was you are a conduit for the message of God. Not that you just get to hoard it for yourself. And th this gets explained even more with this light analogy in Isaiah 42, where God says, and you will be a light to guide all nations to me. And then a few chapters later, Isaiah 49, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I'm going to make you a light to the Gentiles. You will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And what's so cool is that Jesus picks up on this, doesn't he? What does he say about himself? He says, I am the light of the world. That thing, that call, that vocational job I had for Israel, it did not go as it was supposed to go. And you got to know I'm not going to leave it that way. That Jesus comes and says, I am the light of the world. And then he does what is one of the most humbling, crazy, bizarre things is that he looks at each of you who are a follower of Jesus and he says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. That vocational call I had for Israel so many years ago is yours. Isn't that incredible? And what I grew up singing the song, This Little Light of Mine. Anybody else know that one? This Little Light of Mine. And then Don't Let Satan Blow It Out, which it always felt to me like it was fragile. Like it was this fragile thing that at any, different, at any moment it might get extinguished. And I want to propose to you, it is not fragile. 
That the light that, that Jesus says is yours is a bonfire around which the world is supposed to show up to to get warm. That, that it's many ways what I love about what we do at Union Gospel Mission is that that, that place is to be a bonfire that people come to because they feel warm. And that is the calling of the people of God, is to be that light, that bonfire, that we're not afraid of it getting extinguished because we know that the one behind it cannot be defeated. <laughs> Amen? And that ultimately, being chosen is not about exclusivity. Being chosen is about a radical call to inclusivity. That being chosen is not ultimately about exclusivity. It is a vocational call to radically bring in the world so they can get warm to a world that really needs it and we need it. And so, kingdom people, this is one of the most incredible opportunities we have, which is to introduce people to Jesus. That we don't have to be afraid to introduce people to Jesus because it is the most beautiful invitation and introduction we could ever make because Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. He says, you're the light of the world. And he says, it's not a burdensome thing to carry. So there is a point of being chosen and it's ultimately about delivering the mail. So the third strand, and this is a strand that I, I came across two years ago, and if I had time, I would read my journal entry because it was nonsense. I didn't know what to make of it, and it didn't fit in this grid of binary exclusivity and chosenness, and it's from the book of Amos. So here's what Amos 9.7 says. You Israelites, you're just like the Ethiopians in my sight, says the Lord. Now certainly, I brought Israel up from the land of Egypt. We know that. But I also brought the Philistines from Kaftor and the Aramaeans from Kerr. Huh. Well, that's weird. I thought you were all about us. So the context here is Israel is being told by Amos, you know you're about to be destroyed, right? This is, this is about to go badly. And in this context, he decides to bring up three nations to prove his point. Now, the first one is Ethiopia. And there are a number of places where Ethiopia gets brought up in the Bible. But the most prominent description of Ethiopia and the connection point is just how far away they are. That they are known for being totally um, unaccessible. That the main way they get described is to say, this nation is, well, I don't know how far away, it's, it's like Ethiopia. It's that far away. And yet in the context of a localized God, for then Amos and God through Amos to say, you know that I know them, right? Like, they're far away, but you got to know they're not far enough away for me to be kept out. And so there's this sense that inaccessibility geographically does not, does not get in the way of God's love. So we have Ethiopia, and then we have two other nations, and here's the, here's the way they're described. So we've got the Philistines, which if Israel's right here, the Philistines were right here. And then the Aramaeans were right here. So these are the neighbors of Israel. These are, if you read through the Old Testament, these are the enemies of Israel. These are the ones that over and over again, the people call out to God and say, would you smite my enemies? And yet what we see here is God saying, did you know that, um, well, you know how you had an exodus? You were in Egypt and I brought you home 
to safety and peace? Guess what? I did that for your enemies. The Philistines, yeah, I brought them home. And the Aramaeans, yeah, I brought them home too. Did you know that? Isn't that great? Can you imagine Israel going, no, that's not great. Those are my enemies. What are you doing? And yet the quintessential example of Israel's chosenness, the exodus, gets negated (laughs) to say, did you know that my chosenness does not create exclusivity. I can choose them and I can choose them and I can choose them and yet in the midst of it all, there's like this just oh, bullhorn saying there is no favoritism ethnically. There's no favoritism politically. There's no favoritism geographically. There's no favoritism tribally that all are in Christ. Isn't that good news? And I think what is even more profound is to really take the veil away, let the clouds part, and see that God has always been this way. This is not a new thing he just decided to do in Amos, but he needed to show us something different so we would actually hang out long enough to see it. That the God that we find in Scripture has always looked like Jesus and that he's been working in every human heart, no matter their tribe, no matter their tongue, no matter their social economic status, no matter their race, no matter their refugee status, no matter their sexual orientation, no matter their political party, all of it is nothing in the face of Jesus. That he says, I've always been for all these people, and the way that you categorize us versus them, you're missing the beauty of Jesus. And Paul picks up on this in Acts 17, and I love it. He says his purpose, God's purpose, was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. That he's not far from anyone, that his nation, or that God's purpose was always for Ethiopia. His purpose was always for the Philistines. His purpose was always for the Aramaeans. His purpose was always, who knew, the Canadians. He was for them. And his purpose was always for the Russians. His purpose was always for the Syrians. His purpose was always for the Iraqis. His purpose was always for the United States of America. But his choosing one does not need to mean he didn't choose the other. That God is big enough to say yes and not have a no. Isn't that good news? God's love has always looked like Jesus dying on a cross. Always, always, always. And to the degree that we see pictures in the Old Testament that don't look like that, our job is to say, what else is going on? How can I see this stooping of God to look less than he is so that we might actually come to him? It's amazing. And I want to leave you with three points, Um, maybe things to be thinking about. The first is, I want to implore us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Um, Jesus is the quintessential revelation of who God is. is. He is the heartbeat of it all. And he is the mirror image of God. To the degree that we miss Jesus, then we start policing the perimeters that if we don't focus on the center, we start guarding everything else. 
And what I know about the kingdom of God is that there is no border security needed in the kingdom of God. There is no border police in the kingdom of God. There is no need to protect the boundaries because Jesus says, you're the bonfire. People are going to want to run to you. You don't need to protect the edges when people are running to you. That we are supposed to be focusing on Jesus. And you see this in this messianic prophecy in Isaiah 42.1. Look what Jesus is called. Behold my servant who I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Who is the ultimate chosen one? It's Jesus. And to the degree that we focus on him, then we don't have to worry about all the perimeter stuff. Um, Second, who do you feel superior to? Who do you feel superior to? Who would you be a little annoyed with if God says, I was helping that enemy of yours. I orchestrated an exodus for them. They were in the midst of turmoil and I didn't dig in deeper. I said, I'm giving you freedom. Is there a group of people you generalize and say, well, at least I'm not like them. And yet God says I'm for all people all the time. And who do you feel inferior to? This, I know this one can be a more difficult one because I know a lot of us feel like, well, I don't know, I don't feel superior to anybody. It's just, I, it's just a race to the bottom for me. <laughs> it's, uh, who do I feel like I don't measure up to? I don't feel like I'm enough. And I, I want to read a, a brief passage from a book by a guy named Brennan Manning where he digs into this. Here's what he says. He tells a story about a priest from Detroit. The priest's name is Edward Farrell. He went for his two-week summer vacation to Ireland, like you do. And uh, his one living uncle was about to celebrate his 80th birthday. And on the great day, the priest and his uncle, they got up before dawn and they dressed in silence. They took a long walk on the shores of Lake Killarney and stopped to watch the sunrise. Standing side by side with not a word exchange, they're staring straight at the rising sun. Suddenly the uncle, this 80-year-old uncle, turned and went skipping down the road. He was radiant, beaming, smiling ear to ear. His nephew said, Uncle Seamus, you look happy. (laughs) And his uncle said, I am, lad. And he said, well, would you tell me why? And his 80-year-old uncle replied and said, yes. You see, my Abba, he's so fond of me. He's so fond of me. Later on in this book, Manning talks about how, um, do you know that, that God actually likes you? Not that God loves you, because theologically God has to love you. Do you, do you actually believe God likes you? That he would choose to hang out with you? That he's fond of you? And what's amazing is that God saying, I like you, I'm fond of you, I want to be with you, doesn't mean he needs to say, I don't want to be with somebody else. That, uh, it's the binary conception of how we think of chosenness, that God can say, I like you, I like you, I like you, I'm fond of you, I want to be with you. And to the degree that we can let that sink in, we get freed up from trying to earn something we already have. That we, if we don't do that, we end up being like, parasitic. We feed off other people and we need them to be down for us to feel up. And that if we can sit at the feet of Jesus and say, 
I am loved for who I am. And at the core, I'm actually enough. Then we get freed up to live in all sorts of radical ways that bring the kingdom. And they are ways that break down all of the us versus them and turn it into an us for them. That at the cross and in the kingdom of God, the whole categorization and way that we divide and separate the world gets obliterated. It's completely foreign to the kingdom of God. And it's such good news. So kingdom people, our job is to deliver the mail. (laughs) Because God showed us on Calvary that at the core of his being, he is for all people everywhere and there are no exceptions to that. He is for you. So, would you stand with me for a minute as we close? I'm going to invite our prayer teams to come up and I just want to say if, if there's anybody in this room who has not been introduced to a God who actually likes them, <laughs> these folks who are up here praying would love to introduce you to that God because it is one of the most marvelous introductions that can ever be made. And if there are anything, anything that came up, maybe it was a, a story you'd forgotten about when you felt like you weren't chosen. Maybe it was a time when you felt like, um, boy, I felt left out on that one. And you just want to sit with somebody and pray. These folks would love to pray with you. So would you uh, pray with me as I just uh, pray a blessing over you? Father God, we pray and we thank you that your love is better than we can ever grasp in our head and that The way that you bring us in is the most radical possible thing you could have ever done. So would you give us boldness in seeing our vocational call to serve the world and be the bonfire that the world can come to to get warm. So we thank you. We love you. We are so blessed. Amen. Amen. Have a great week. Hey folks, I have some very good news. Uh, as you know, we are shooting for 375 sustainers this year. We end up getting a grand total of, wait for it, wait for it, 381. So thanks so much uh, for responding to the promptings of the Spirit, uh, for supporting us in this ministry. Uh, we just It's an honor to be pouring into you. On that note, let me just say, I got to meet some of you this last weekend uh, in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, at the Missio Conference. It was a great conference with N.T. Wright, and we're talking about crucifixion of the warrior God and things like that. But the thing that blew me away the most was all the people, uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of people coming and sharing about what the podcast has meant to them. Um, and uh, the testimonies are just very humbling. Uh, you know, people whose faith was saved because of the podcast or uh, their, their passion for Christ was increased or finally their view of God was coherent or, you know, it's just, it's had a transforming effect. And I just uh, love to hear them and it's overwhelming. And let's just thank God for the opportunity, the privilege that we have here at Woodlands Church to uh, be a blessing to others. So thanks for support. Teamwork together. Let's build this kingdom. God bless.